And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Kellen and Alex Show. John Sully. Welcome back. Show? <laughs> it's currently Kellen and Alex show, but uh, you didn't tell me what this was. You're just like we're podcasting. I don't know why. We I, are, I've tried we to are. prep you. Uh, not at all. Okay. Yeah, it's how I like going in blind and unprepared. I love it. I thrive on it. Uh, <laughs> Sounds sexy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, great start. Great start. Uh, great start. Great start. Um, so this weekend uh, we have a Latin mass debate. Ooh, we do. Yes, you do. More well, than, I do. More you do more than I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you presented at the last debate, the line yeah, debate. Yeah. How'd you think you did? Um, I mean, people tend to be nice when they talk to you, but that in mind, people did compliment how I did as a presenter. Um, I'm not that happy with my arguments. They could have been better, but for what I had to work with, I think. I probably should cut myself some slack and said I did fine. But so, so we have yeah. this theory that if you argue for a side, this is Nation Clem's theory. If you argue for a side, you actually end up believing it, regardless of what it is. Oh, I didn't at all. So you're the exception to the rule because no, no, I, did I, I feel like when I when I argue for a side, I'm like I'll defend it tooth and nail for like forever. No, the <laughs> more I read and the more I kind of dipped my toes because I didn't have time to do an in depth analysis of the philosophical debate here, but. The more I dip my toes in it, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, the side I'm arguing against is clearly correct. And I just need to find a way to present a contra argument, like be the defense attorney or the devil's advocate to let this debate happen and let the truth actually shine forth. I no, I was not like when you start getting into you're like, OK, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's some good arguments. But then as I got the next level of the onion after that, it was like, oh, no, no, my side's just wrong. Well, I may end up having that feeling yeah. <laughs> this weekend. Yeah. So the motion is this house believes that restricting the Latin mass promotes church unity, mm -hmm. which it wasn't always that motion. It used to be strict adherence to the Latin mass uh, promotes disunity in the church, which definitely would be easier for my side to argue. Yeah. I, I think I might like that more, but whatever. Yeah. We, we ended up changing it um, just because we thought strict adherence was like too much. Like you're implying mindset. You're implying like a whole ton of stuff, you know? Yeah. At least my opinion. <laughs> and I did pick up that some, like I think Spieldenner maybe was really, the word strict adherence, he felt were like too ambiguous or something like that. Yeah. So we uh, we co-authored that gauntlet article uh, that came out, you The Liturgical keep, Wasteland. You keep saying that. It was your thought completely. <laughs> I'm trying to push blame <laughs> on you, John. No, no. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're getting blamed for this article. How bad so, it turned out. No, <laughs> it was... All from your education and your thought. I, I'm i like Gandalf. I merely gave him a nudge out the door. I helped him. I, I just helped him trim some fat and added some a couple ideas to clarify into it. It was it was you're the author. I was a, a, a very involved editor or, or midwife. Sure, like, okay, midwife. You were yeah, pregnant we'll with the article. I was the midwife of the article. See, that was a good progression. You made a Gandalf thing and then you said a midwife because my article had a Lord of the Rings quote and then you told me to cut it. Yes. Which was, we like smog are sitting on mountains of gold, frustrated and fuming. But apparently it didn't fit with my argument. I think. Which I agree. I think it was the right choice to cut it at that point. So I made the argument in that um, article. It's, it's a really kind of subtle argument. And by that, I mean a kind of crappy one. But <laughs> so 
my opinion on this whole thing, my opinion on this whole TLM, Novus Ordo, the whole thing is just really informed by my reading of the histories of it. Mm -hmm. And we've talked this to death, but it's like in the years leading up to Vatican one, there was this huge movement in the church called the liturgical movement led by people like Don Prosper Garnier. There was a number of others. I forget their names, but what they wanted to do is make, um, they understood that the West is becoming secular, like already you were having places like the kingdom of Italy was taking over. And of course you'd already had the French revolution and, and France had become de-Catholicized. And so they were trying to make all of the liturgy across Europe, like look exactly the same, which it had never looked before. <clears throat> now, no, this is interesting. This was just pre Vatican one, correct? Mm -hmm. Cause the impression I've had, and I don't know if other people have had this as well, is that the strong move for like, liturgical hegemony or whatever you want to call it from top down was kind of a tr like post Tridentine thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People accuse it. Well, because Trent has that section in there where it talks about like any right less than 200 years old needs yes. to be suppressed. Yes. But, but what they meant, it was far less drastic. That meant anything from like 1300 previously was still fair game, but most of the rights are actually pre 13, like 1300s and before. Right. Um, so, I mean, all of the, the Franciscan and the Dominican way of doing the liturgy, the Benedictine way of doing the liturgy, the, the way they do the liturgy in Cluny, the Cistercian like ways they did the liturgy, the Gallican rites, the Ambrosian rite in Milan, how they do their liturgy in Hungary, Ireland, etc. It would have been very diverse. Mm -hmm. I mean, as diverse as the peoples are. If you really understand liturgy as like being the work of the people, it's, it's extremely diverse, right? Um, so it was only Vatican I that it ended up being like uniform. But it was uniformly like Roman. It was like taking the Roman way of making liturgy and saying, well, well, all of the Germans and the Frenchies and the everybody's like lost the faith. So let's at least have one thing that unites us, which is a Roman. I don't know. I mean, was that a bad? You think that was a bad decision? I have no idea how to like morally judge this in any way. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> um, I zoned out reading about the Ambrosian right a little bit. So are, are you asking whether... Was it bad the, to try are, and implement are, like uniform the, okay. Roman? That you were talking about pre-Vatican II, not the Tridentine reforms. No. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, I haven't done as much reading as you have on this issue. Just from what I have, though, I do from what liturgy is and my own, like, not very well-developed anthropo anthropological concepts think that litur diversity in liturgical, liturgical expression is a good thing. That the purpose of the liturgical, the form the liturgy takes, the actual, the physicality, the architecture of the church, the music, you know, all that, the language it's set in, are for the sake of the people to enter into what's happening. So I think judging on what the peoples are, what their symbolic language is, what the physical signs mean to them, what music lifts them up. I think you need to take that all into account and because of the diversity of cultures, the diversity of nations within the church, there is going to be diversity within how the liturgy is expressed. And do you think <clears throat> like quelling that diversity because, you know, like the peoples are actively becoming de-Christianized and so they're no longer bringing their, like their plurality to the liturgy like themselves, you know, mm -hmm. because the people who were now becoming like atheists and not going to mass and not becoming churchgoers and like societally that's being lost. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, okay, well, we need something to rally around. And the only thing you can rally around universally is the Roman way of doing the Latin rite. 
I'm not sure I... It, it's not clear to me how that follows. Um, it's the idea that they don't like... Or, like, the the way it currently is is just not not of interest to them. It's not working, so we need to... Like, I don't see how it follows from we're losing them. It's becoming increasingly secular, increasingly post-Catholic. I don't see how that necessarily leads to we need to rally around a universal liturgy. Like, how is the mm. universal liturgy an answer to that problem at all? It, it, but unless you want to say, like, the current, there's, it's, there's some deficiency in the current right that's, you know, exacerbating the problem or not addressing the problem. Maybe it was to, like, make a unified front, you could say. Like, you want to marshal all the energies of the, the church that's left, you know, in the midst of these secular states now. So you make their liturgies uniform to kind of, like, show that they're allegiant to the new, you know, to Rome and against what is now the secular world. Maybe? I don't know. Uh, seems like a very Romish concept of the church. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, like the idea that we're all rallying under Rome's banner, so we're all going to sing Rome's songs type thing, but it's kind of... I mean, it was kind of like that, I mean, right? It's, it's kinda, that, that seems like the Ultramontane project. I was, that, I, right? I was actually avoiding using that word yet, but I was thinking the whole... While, I, while I was spitting out that word salad, I was thinking Ultramontane. So Ultramontanism, I guess we should explain a little bit more, but uh, so the work of Joseph de Meister... Maestre, whatever it is, M-A-I-S-T-R-E, and others. He wrote a book, Du Pape, Du Pape, Du Pape, I don't know. The Pope. On the Pope. Yeah. And he made the argument, that the Pope is this infallible leader, and he's kind of this, like, divine right monarch, and he should be, like, the divine right monarch of the world. Because that's very, <laughs> it's a very summary style version of it, but... The whole ultramontane movement was so-called because it's over the mountains, it's... Yeah, ultramontane. And it's German and French thinkers looking to Rome for their new divine right sovereignty. But what was funny is reading uh, John O'Malley's book, Father John O'Malley, on Vatican I, uh, he called it Vatican I in the making of the ultramontane church. He basically points out how like funny it was that they were having all these concepts of like divine right sovereignty because they were like 80 years removed from anyone who was like actually a divine right sovereign. Because <laughs> those were like pre-French Revolution guys. Yeah, it was pretty late in, like, and and things that were coming around were like <laughs> it was the late constitutional, yeah. like you know, not even constitutional monarchies. Yeah. They were like parliamentary and you know whatever. The whatever whole, the, the whole divine right thing was late too, though. That wasn't until the later French monarchs when that idea sort of started rising up. Right? Yeah, because people read it back, I think, into like medieval history, but it was pretty modern from my understanding yeah it's a very modern concept yeah i mean i mean thomas hobbes was writing his work leviathan for a divine right monarch right mm -hmm. i could forget what who it was probably named louis or something yeah who knows <laughs> um yeah but i mean yeah i mean it was the ultramontane project to make the, the liturgy uniform and that that to me is like such a big history point for this whole debate i mean if you don't understand if you don't get like the whole well, there used to be liturgical plurality and diversity and subsidiarity in the West. We did away with that at Vatican I, right? And then that project from like 1870 up until the Novus Ordo in 1969 uh, was, it was all like just uniform TLM in the West. East never had it. No. Uh, I don't know the history of the reconciliation with Eastern rites very well because... 
I th- I'm thinking for some reason a lot of the Eastern Catholic rites coming back to the church is pretty modern or even contemporary. Yeah, it comes like, a lot later. Like the Ukrainian Catholics, the Greek Catholics at all. <clears throat> like their reunification with Rome, I think, is pretty modern. I don't know where they fall into this timeline of Western liturgy. Yeah. But the East has been doing its own thing since the schism. Exactly. And probably yeah. before the, sh- the schism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Schism, schism, oh, schism, schism. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, they've been doing their, <laughs> they've been doing their own thing, uh, and but that's the reason why their liturgy's never changed. Like it's been literally the same for like ages and ages and ages, going back to John Christum. I mean, ours. Uh, see, but in the West, it would have taken like you know different forms in different areas. Anyways, we're overemphasizing the fact, maybe. But so my thesis is that Vatican II basically felt that okay, look, this whole Latin project is over, like. <laughs> No one is paying attention to mass and there's a lot of things changing and we need to just, we need to be assimilated into the Western societies again. We can't keep having this like liturgy that makes us completely Roman and outside of secular society. Like our liturgy needs to speak to man where he is in the modern setting now. Yeah. I mean, we can't resist and say we're completely separate anymore we need to reintegrate and then sanctify and then mm-hmm. convert it from within and we need a liturgy to, that expresses that i suppose yeah and you can critique i mean i'm not gonna disagree with that because that's so similar i'd be contradicting myself earlier when i said that the liturgy is going to take the form that is relevant to the peoples and the, or that's different words than i used earlier but i agree with you there but i would ask you what is that going to look like in contemporary western society which i think you aptly called the wasteland because it's not what the church has done in the past where they go into a, a pagan nation and they can baptize the symbols and take what's good and sanctify it. What we have here is an apostate. We have apostate nations, not pagan nations. Yeah. When someone commits sin and falls away, you don't rebaptize them. They have the sacrament of penance. So I, I could see maybe an argument being made, go back to the old liturgical forms because this is the cultural heritage of the West. They need to be reconciled with their own cultural heritage. There's no, there's nothing. What's what will the good we'd be reintegrating here comes from Christianity. It's a post-Christian nation, you know? So the pushback I give you is like, so what does this new liturgical form look like that the West uses? I love that you use the word like penance. I mean, that was what Fatima was all about, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm just remembering because the, uh, uh, Athanasius Schneider, the Bishop Athanasius Schneider was here last night and he gave a baller homily on just like Fatima. Okay. <laughs> and he, he was calling out the communists like five different times. It was like, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, I he mean, grew up with I it. Mean, so there are commies still. I don't know how relevant they are, but they yeah, exist. I mean, they don't have any political power in the West or in America. But. Yeah, wasn't, but I mean, you know, he was talking about the, the materialism that communism spreads. Um, this kind of, and even in capitalism, what we have now is just kind of materialism. Uh, yeah. Liturgical form it takes. I don't know. <laughs> See, I think I brought this up to you and maybe some others. Like, this is not, there's no liturgical problem in, and I mean this like where they're all up in arms about it, in Africa or Southeast Asia. I've actually... Like the places where the yeah. church is growing. I was, because I'm terminally online, uh, was on the Catholic, <laughs> the Catholic Twitter circles again, I think is where it was. And someone brought up or maybe it was talking to you. What, what's reality? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> no, but someone I saw somewhere someone expressing the the idea that uh, a lot of the liturgical problems, as you were saying, 
liturgical abuses are in Western nations. You don't hear about liturgical abuse and stuff in Africa. The Novus Ordo and the post-V2 reforms, for lack of a better term, yeah. seem to have actually really, really worked in Asia and Africa. It's in the West where they've been abused or aren't bearing the fruits we'd like to see. Yeah. It, it's weird to say, but like the Novus Ordo like seems to have worked, <laughs> at least in like countries that are now becoming Christian. Because now they, well, if you think about what they were allowed to do before that, it was like, I don't know. Wait a second. Maybe I'm wrong, John. Maybe I'm wrong about this whole thing. Maybe. I could be wrong about this whole thing. Well, well, I'm thinking about the conversion of European countries. Mm -hmm. Like, there was, they either adopted the Western form of the liturgy, which was Latin, or they adopted the Eastern form of the liturgy, which was Greek, right? Because, it, like, Romania was, like, the farthest that accepted Roman version of worship, right? Hungary did, too, where they accepted the Latin way of doing it. But countries around them took the Eastern way, like Bulgaria and whatever, I don't know, those other Balkan states, right? So, like, if you were closer to Byzantium than you were to Rome, you took Eastern, and the other took Western, right? Um, and they had a plurality, but it was, like, generically similar, that we could call it East and West, right? Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Um, well, wasn't there, there was the debate in the 1500s when the Jesuits went to China and Japan, right? Where you had the Franciscans and the Dominicans who basically said these Chinese people need to basically become Westerns, you know? Yeah. And then you had the Jesuits who were like wearing Chinese garb and, and like, you know. Adopting the Chinese culture. Yeah. And, and allowing themselves big... to be referred to, I think, was it China or Japan where I think... It might have been, um, how am I forgetting Francis Xavier's name? Francis Xavier himself, when he went to, it was either China or Japan as opposed to India, he like actually dropped some bag on some nice clothes and stuff because he understood the culture. If I'm going to be respected here, I'm going to look like a wealthy dude. And he actually was. Really? Wow. So he like actually dressed up in the nicer, higher class, you know, clothes of the aristocracy. Really? Wow. No, yeah. Because <clears throat> like you're getting at the use the culture a little more to evangelize as opposed to imposing the Roman way. I mean, I guess the, I guess the tension is between like how much do you keep of the tradition and how much do you now <laughs> assimilate and let it be a culture, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seemed like the V2 Vatican II um, council fathers were basically like, look, we need to open it up. I mean, I guess now the questions is, did they, by making their new liturgy, is it like way too opened up for interpretation? Like, have we lost way too many of the, the traditions? I don't know. It's a tough question, right? I think... Yo, go ahead. Nah, I don't have anything <laughs> to say. Um, whatever you want to say about the TLM movement in general, it's, like, we should be very sympathetic with it <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? Like, the way that the liturgy has been taken in the West, in America, like... We lost tons and tons of the traditions. Even in the general instruction on the Roman Missal, like they talk about Latin needs to be preserved and the Latin way of doing mass, the Roman like way of doing mass in different ways, right? It's very strange. I don't know. See, the more I talk about this, John, like the less I'm sure about my side. <laughs> yeah. I, I just have like a history that's kind of convinced me of the, let's say, interminability of the problem. Is that the right word? 
I've been misusing words this entire time. So. Okay. <laughs> um, if you want me to be any, do you think, let me prepare. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you think a lot of people are going to show? Uh, I don't know. The last debate, I was actually kind of disappointed with the showing. Um, it didn't seem like we were filling it up very much, but it was the first of the semester and kind of thrown together. With this topic, I wouldn't be surprised if it had a, bit, a wider draw or at least better numbers. We almost got Matthew Frederick. Which would have been interesting. <laughs> he might show up still. Who knows? Matthew yeah, Frederick might know. <laughs> yeah. Shout out. I'm sure he's listening. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a little back scratch. He li we'll listen to Pints with Aquinas if he'll listen to this. Yeah. All right. Let's move into even more controversial grounds. Sergei Bulgakov. Oh. Judas Apostle Betrayer. All right. So let me set this. We'll set the scene. So first of all, who, who is Sergei Bulgakov? Sergei Bulgakov was a Russian priest by the time he's writing this. I believe he was... I don't know if his father was a Russian priest, or he was in the family of one, at least. Born late 19th century, I think. He's a little bit after Soloviev, but not much. Um, he actually, as a young man, sort of fell away from the Orthodox faith and became a Marxist. Oh, no. And his first few books were... I think he did a study on... And eventually left Marxism because of agriculture. He thought Marx's theory didn't, like agricultural production, did not fit into it. Hmm. And eventually moved away from Marxism back to the Orthodox faith. And you can track this in his writings. Um, he obviously reconverted to Orthodox Christianity, became a priest, um, was very influenced by Soloviev. Actually taught, I can't remember which university it was in Russia, but taught on Dostoevsky as well. Really? So, wow. like, that's something I shared with you. I don't know if you read it, but that particular moment in Russian history seems to have borne some very unique and uh, theological fruits. You go with Soloviev, Dostoevsky, Bulgakov, some of the other ones whose names I can't recall right now. But yeah, converted back. Um, he was condemned as a heretic for his Sophiology, Sophology. Uh, I'll look that word up, whatever it is, mm. by the Russian Orthodox Church. He's a bit of a controversial figure, but there are some like David Bentley Hart loves him, who's also a controversial yeah. figure in his own right. Extremely, yeah. Yes. Um, but the books so far, Judas Iscariot, um, Apostle Betrayer, I've loved and has impacted me a ton. I'm not sure once I finish it, I'm still working my way through the second half. It's a lot more theoretical and difficult. The dogmatic section? Yes. I just got there. Yeah. I'm working with that. I'm not sure I'll agree with it a hundred percent, but I think it's a beneficial book. Brilliant. Um, or I'm not sure. I'm just not sure where to go off yeah. from it here on it, but that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I think in one of the thesis of the book. Okay. So, I mean, he starts off with this idea of like, look, Jesus isn't stupid, <laughs> you know, sophiology that, yeah. Okay. Sophiology. And he's also universalist. Like what would we think it, but... of like a really intelligent, I don't know, a preacher, like evangelist, you know, professor maybe, who picks, like handpicks, you know, people who are going to be his associates, and then picks one that's like a total criminal and an evil person. Like, what would we think of their mm -hmm. character in vetting out their closest companions? You know, and Bulgakov's like, uh, I think it's, he, he basically inserts the problematic of like, it's, it's, uh, doesn't he use the word blasphemy? It's blasphemous to say, oh, oh, that is blasphemous to say that Christ would have picked like a common criminal. That he would have made a mistake in judging who to pick in his circle. That this was just, that there was some like 
lack of knowledge on Christ's part or Christ no. just kind of messed up by selecting this. Guy. No, yeah, he knew from the beginning who he was going to pick. Reads the hearts of men. So he introduced he introduces that concept, which on the the surface of it is to basically assert like you can't just dismiss Judas as like oh he's just a bad guy because if you do, well, a bad guy without like any further character, you know, analysis of who he who he actually was or what he did or whatever else. Because otherwise you'd just be asserting that like Christ just made a bad choice in picking people, you know, and like, and that Judas didn't have a particular role as apostle that he didn't fulfill. Well, here's the passage. No, go for it. it. How should we judge spiritual leaders who cannot distinguish between a sanctimonious hypocritical deceiver and a holy and spirit bearing man who is pleasing to God? Is such blindness not a testimony to their spiritual limitation? And yet the same thing is subconsciously transferred to Christ by all who see the apostle betrayer as only a servant and deceiver. It is outright blasphemy of Christ to think and say that he could simply have been mistaken, choosing among his apostles a thief and a lover of silver, and admitting a base and sly betrayer to the Last Supper. When he called the apostles, he who knew the heart could read their souls like an open book. He knew all their lives in the past and present. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree giving them names on the basis of that knowledge. After praying all night to the Father, he chose and called twelve for instruction and proclamation of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, not only as a perceptive wise man, but also as God. He knew the secrets of the human hearts better and more fully than men them, th- than the men themselves. Therefore, one must remember before all else that Judas is Christ's apostle, even if he is also the apostle betrayer. On top of that, oversimplification and understanding of Judas is in some sense a judgment upon the whole human race. Wow. Yeah, this guy's like an unbelievable writer. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the idea is he's, he's expressing here. I mean, Han has a, uh, Dr. Han has a, uh, you know, a saying, like, if you can't see yourself committing a sin that someone commits in the Bible, you haven't understood it. So I actually threw that back to him when I was yeah. talking about this stuff. It's like, well, whenever people talk about Judas, they just see him as like, like no person could ever do that. Well, it is, to be fair, a very confusing thing. Yeah, man who yes. was a friend of Christ, who dined with him at the Last Supper, who walked with him during his ministry, who proclaimed his name to the Jewish peoples, could, who was uniquely privileged in meeting Christ in person, in the flesh, on this earth, could possibly do that. Yeah. It's, so it is, to be fair, a, a confusing thing. But I think your point stands. To quote the greatest Facebook page on uh, the planet... <laughs> What did, what did I write? I mean, what did this Facebook page write? Uh, <laughs> Internet's slow. Uh, rough. Um, okay, for me, where this gets the best. So he outlines Judas's character, you know, the fact that he's named Judas, which is similar to Judas Maccabeus, who was the, from the revolutionary. And implies that Judas may be from the tribe of Judah. Yep. Which would make him, is he the only Judean Along with Christ, then? Um, I think... Were they all? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure John the Evangelist, the sons of Zebedee, mm-hmm. Zebedee, the reason why he's named is he probably was also, like, part of the Jerusalem, like, nobility, like, okay. priestly class, because yeah. he was known to the high priest. Okay. So, like, Galilee, you would have had, like, vacation homes up there, basically. And the fishing was, like, a side gig. But his main gig was in Jerusalem. That's kind of the idea. Um, no, one of the theses of, of Bulgakov about Judas. So 
When, okay. Uh, how could Judas ever betray Christ? He asked, having committed more sins than he, can, he could even recount. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, uh, that was a great Facebook page, you know? One, yeah. one of the best. So, okay, getting to Judas and his character. So, one of the, <laughs> well, nearly all the apostles, actually, all the apostles were scandalized by Jesus saying he was going to suffer and die. Like that happened in multiple places over the gospels mm-hmm. because they were all expecting this earthly Messiah who's going to be like David, the King, and they were going to get really cool kingly roles. Right. And so when Jesus tells them like all this stuff's going to happen, he's going to suffer and die. Like Peter tells them, no Lord, this is never going to happen to you. And he rebukes him. And then Jesus says back to him, uh, yeah, get behind me, Satan, for you're not thinking on, as the ways of God, but are the ways of men. Now, Bulgakov says that Judas has been expecting, he, he, among all the 12, was the most hardened in his will that Christ was to be the earthly Messiah. He had seen Jesus do miracles. He had seen him perform all these great works. Judas had, prior to his ministry with Christ, devoted himself to revolutionary work in uh, Israel. Yeah. It was, and he set that all aside to follow Christ. He believed that this guy really was the earthly Messiah that will liberate the people and reestablish the kingdom on earth. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he'd seen Christ do all these miracles and like seen his authority that he actually hasn't. Okay. So, so then what's the temptation then? Well, he keeps hearing Christ, like I'm going to die. I'm gonna have to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. Um, but he doesn't want to believe that that is the way. Right. And, so he continues to try and find ways to push Christ to be the earthly Messiah. And then uh, Bulgakov says that last, um, that last scene where Mary Magdalene takes the oil with the nard and anoints Jesus with it. And then Judas says, you know, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And Jesus says, this was done for my burial. And at that point, Judas is basically convinced that Jesus is not taking on his role as Messiah. And he's basically given up. And he needs someone to, like, force his hand. Someone to make him be mm-hmm. this earthly Messiah. Yeah. Perhaps that's his special role as, apostle. Ju- as Judas the Apostle is to force, for lack of a better word, the Messiah to reveal himself in his glory. As opposed to, and, and one of the beautiful things Bulgakov does as well is like oppose Judas and John, the apostle, mm-hmm. the one who lies cr- close to the breast of Jesus. The youngest, the most naive, the most able to accept Christ as he is and as he is manifest before him, John the apostle, that is, to Judas, the most hardened about Christ's age, had a life before this. Um, John, the most naive of the country boys, too. Judas, the only one who was from the sophisticated city. Yeah, it's almost like Boromir and like. Pippin or something yeah. like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Boromir's like, you know, give it to me. We can do this. And yeah. Uh yeah. And Pippin's like, okay, let's keep going. <laughs> All right, where are we going? Yeah. What do you about the Oh. So okay, and I, I love how Bulgakov takes the scene where it's the Last Supper, and Jesus hands this morsel, you know, his the Eucharist to mm-hmm. Judas. And 
Bulgakov takes it as like this last nice thing that Christ is this, you know, very kind, gentle thing that Jesus is doing to him. But then he looks and he sees John the apostle and realizes that, you know, Peter had whispered to John trying to figure out who it was, was going to betray him. And he gave it to Judas. And then when Judas takes the morsel, you know, what you're going to do, do quickly. And he leaves and it was night, right? It was night. Yeah. It's so good. So good. Um, and Judas, so as Bulgakov's account, Judas in that moment was convinced that he needed to hand Jesus over to the enemies, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were going to put him on trial. And that was going to force Jesus to show that he's the earthly Messiah and Judas was going to step in and, you know, say, you know, I did this all for you and, you know, now we're going to reign. But that didn't happen. He goes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And, you know, Jesus says, friend, why are you here? And uh, and then he realizes that instead of basically forcing Jesus to become the earthly Messiah, Jesus is actually going to go all the way to the cross. And this is Bulgakov, maybe heretical. Hold up. Judas uh, couldn't bear being on earth without Christ and decided to kill himself and wait for him in Sheol. That's kind of whack. <laughs> what did you think of that point, part, John? Um, it's not a full account of what Bulgakov says, too, because there's also the inner torment, and Judas, as apostle, condemns himself to death. He sees his sin is so much greater than even the sin of the other apostles, Peter particularly, who denies. Um, the other apostles are a weakness of will, a weakness in their a failure in their love, where Judas sees himself as it's a perverse love. It's a different genre of sin and he condemns himself to death on a tree yeah parallel to christ because he is the criminal and deserves to die i think that was a big part of it too bulgakov does end it though you're right winking at his universalism is he a universalist oh yeah he is yeah uh, he he is like not just universalist he's a very very anti-infernalist really like or i don't know if he i don't know his exact opinion on what that would look like, but he definitely does not believe in an eternal hell. He believes in apocatastasis, the final rec- rectifying and redemption of all of creation. Um, did did Judas meet the teacher in Sheol? Question mark is how he puts it. Did Judas meet the teacher in Sheol? Was his gloom-laden soul enlightened by the light of Christ's resurrection? Question mark. He doesn't assert it here, but he sort of winks at his uh, universalism. But I mean, Sheol would have been the abode of the dead. For It wouldn't have been hell, right? I think so. Isn't that what the Jewish yeah. word is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even here, I mean, you can still be a universalist and hold like there's a shale, right? And a Gehenna. Like a place of real torment, but it's not an eternal yeah. hell. I can't remember which of the early church fathers it is, but there was some as the doctrine and the ideas were developing who seemed to indicate, if I remember, that there will be a place of torment for sinners, but it's more purgatorial and eventually everyone can be redeemed. And then, I mean, you see that in some modern thinking too. Is the fire of hell, are hellfire and the fire of purgation different fires? Or is it just some people keep themselves there and some are able to be purged and hmm. purified by it? If there ever was an inquisition against me, John, they definitely would get me on this. 
<laughs> on this notion. They would definitely hammer that. Part. Notice I, like Bulgakov, am using question marks and talking about other people's ideas on this matter. <laughs> I haven't said what I think. No, you haven't said what you think. That's how I avoid the Inquisition. It's like, other people think this might be true. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Um, speaking of other people. All I and... say is that I think Hellfire exists. <laughs> I'd certainly believe it. No. Do I think... Listen li here. No. Literal fire exists. I don't know. Hellfire is an image for it. But I think there is a place of torment for sinners. I'll say that much. Do you or do you not deny apocastasis? <laughs> do I deny it? Has the church denied it yet? Uh, <laughs> just real quick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tricky. My, the church hasn't actually defined that much on hell, have they? I mean that the that hell exists and it is uh the cho or what's the language? It's like it is willful separation from the father in the afterlife. Yeah. I think is the church's teaching on hell they haven't defined much that I know of. I mean individual saints and individual revelations and individual uh clerics and bishops may have said stuff, but I don't think there's like a super defined doctrine on what hell or purgatory look like. You know, doesn't C.S. Lewis have, like, his psychological proof for God's existence? You know, where he talks about, like, um, you know, I, we wish for the highest good, like, everything to be accomplished that can only be accomplished by God, you know. And Brothers Karamazov, when Ivan talks about, you know, the the, hor the, the actual, like, terrible, um, what is it, <laughs> child murders, he goes through, like, this whole list of just terrible things that happen to children. It's almost like kind of a... a Christopher Hitchens, like, or Richard Dawkins, like, you know, eating your eyes out with bugs and crap. It's really bad. Um, but then he has this line of, what do I, what do I care about an eternal hell for my enemies? Mm -hmm. I've had that same feeling. I'm like, I don't, look, if there's a hell and if it exists, I don't see its necessity personally in, in this what I should say, I should clarify, I'm not a heretic, but basically what I mean is even people of the worst of people that I can think of, I don't, like, if they if they didn't burn in, eternally in hell, I wouldn't be upset at that. But maybe I'm not holy enough, I don't know. Is this a weird way to frame it? I don't think so, I mean... I mean, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, what do I care what, about what eternity do I, of hell? What do I gain from Hitler burning or Judas burning eternally? Yeah. I'm in the beatific vision, I mean... Maybe there's an argument. Because people like overemphasize, like, oh yeah, Aquinas says we'll we'll have joy over yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the screams of the, the dams or the which is kind of a crazy. Or an Augustinian notion like yeah. that. And it's just like, okay, well, maybe I haven't reached that that height of, you know, of this is God's justice, but like I don't know. I don't really care for a hell for, for my enemies. And because it doesn't it doesn't diminish the glory of being redeemed, you know, or the, or the glory of being united to Christ, right? I mean, if it did, then basically the the devil's point in the brothers Karamazov's true. Um, you know, their hallelujah only has meaning because of my non-servium. Mm -hmm. That's a tough thing to wrestle with, <laughs> and and maybe we should just continually to wrestle with it, and not come definitively on universalism because yeah. that's probably wrong right um but it is a very uh, i'll yeah, also say i think difficult. an eternal hell is definitely is possible like it is possible yeah. the way i should phrase that it is possible that someone will be damned for eternity 
That to me also is mysterious. It's how very, you do it's very difficult, but it's a similar mystery to how sin is possible to those who have grace and who have witnessed the truth. And even more challenging how Adam and Eve sinned, and even more challenging than that, how the demons exist. How is Lucifer possible? How is Satan po- how how is Lucifer becoming Satan possible? That is very mysterious to me. Same. I mean, that's the primordial fall. I mean, that's mm-hmm. before the fall. It's the fall of the fall. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, let's move to maybe controversial, but theology and social theory. John Milbane. Another thing we've been reading and <laughs> pretty wild, uh, to be honest. So we read part of it. Um, so this is John Milbane, part of the radical orthodoxy movement. Uh, more theological fun stuff you should know. Besides Ultramontanism and liturgical reform and Bulgakov. <laughs> um, they're part of the radical orthodoxy move, uh, movement. And how could you put it? They want to bring theology back as the queen of the sciences and properly as a social science. So one of the assertions is that in sociology and in different sociological histories and whatever, basically what you find are different theologies, different versions of man, of God, of reality. And so sociology like judges other social structures by its own theological vision, you could say. Um, and he takes on Max Weber, he takes on Durkheim, takes on um, all all the sociologists up to Kant, Hegel and Marx, the post-Nietzscheans, and eventually Augustine. So it's quite a a master text. Um, But basically that theology, rather than just being like a very small, narrow thing where you deal with the topics of God, but as being the foundation for any type of politics, the foundation for economics, the foundation for all of it. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's um, it's kind of a tour de force, um, to be honest. But yeah, what what did you think of Millbank when uh, we talked about it? I mean, it was interesting stuff. All I know about it is from what you have said about it, pretty much, and what little I've encountered on my own. But it's almost exclusively what you've said. So, oh okay, well, yeah, I, I couldn't bring. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read the book myself. No, yeah, fair. Um, there. Their radical orthodoxy is very in line with, like, let's say the new theology guys. So, De Lubach, um, Von Balthasar. Yeah. Have you read much of Von Balthasar? No, I want to get into him, but I haven't. Yeah. I've only been going with the controversial weirdos from the East so far. I haven't gotten and now into we're on the what? controversial weirdos I, I, from the West. West. I haven't gotten into our own weirdos yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What What's exciting for me is, like, People think, you know, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, we're thinking about non-Catholics for a second. Like, non-Catholics think that Catholics, like, all believe exactly the same thing. And then you get in the faith and you're just like, oh, my gosh, you believe tons of different stuff about a lot of different things. There's so many disagreements. Uh, but it is kind of glorious. So, a lot of what, um, I don't know, a lot of Jones's. Dr. Jones's project and a lot of John Milbanks, it seems like rediscovering Thomas, St. Thomas in his original setting, rediscovering Augustine in his original setting and getting away from this kind of like rationalistic Thomism 
and these very sharp distinctions between nature and grace. Now, do you want to like define, maybe suss out a little more what exactly this rational Thomism is, what you mean by that? I see if I just gave, like if I was like Garrigou Lagrange <laughs> and the, like the man, the manualist would be a large part of this. So thinking you can take the, and Denzinger. So like finding all the dogma, dogmas of the church and then just implementing them basically. And then using the, the philosophy of Thomas as kind of like a system that's impenetrable and completely self-explanatory. And then using it as like your plan of it's attack like for theology. And all like the, only one this, perennial the, This all-exhaustive systematic theology that, that has spells out literally yeah. everything to it. You just ascend to it, live it, you're good. Mm. That seems to be what they're going against. Okay. Maybe they're wrong because I also know very intelligent people who are like totally for manualism and, and totally for that, that style. Um, I'm my, <laughs> my opinions say I'm not, but I don't know. It just, it just doesn't appeal to me like a theology that kind of like is more scientific and it's like, you know, all these different points, you know, and you can explain them perfectly within your system. Is what's putting you off about it, the focus and the approach more that by calling it rationalism, it's only appealing to the human intellect too much. It's not, it, it seems like sort of a, a cold calculating Maybe. faith. Is, is that what's putting you off by it or? It's not like an integrated idea or am I? No, I also yeah. think it's like wrongheaded because I think what they're doing is they're making a space for theology that's too narrow. It's just yeah. in the rationalistic, like propositional, yeah, um, small mm -hmm. space. Like theology also includes, like Milbank's talking about, like this social theory along with it, this idea of mankind in social, you know, it has to be an ecclesial social structure. And likewise, that theology is also um, is a sociology itself in understanding other societies in their relationality to the church and relationality to grace and like how they're moving through history. Mm -hmm. And so it's like bringing theology back to the oh, front yeah. as being the main master discourse, you could say. That's Milbank's That's point. That's interesting because I was also thinking, in addition to that, rather than focusing narrowly on the intellect the living the faith also includes the will and the passions and not just theory, but actual encounter with the divine. Yep. I think Newman gets into this a little bit more. I think the notional versus real distinction is so not, or actual. What's his word? Notional. Yeah. Notional um, sense, real sense. It's, it's so useful here, but that, that's what I was thinking you might be getting into too. Yeah. When you focus too much on the mind, the faith becomes sort of a, just a series of propositions you assent to and you're good. It's not a fully integrated human thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because we're, we're, the rationalists tend to do that, re reduce either the humans to sort of a calculating robot or focus on the will so inordinately that they forget that we are embodied creatures with will and passions and all this. And, that, and that's, to bring it back to the liturgy, that's why we have a liturgy the way we do. It fully incorporates the person. That's why ad orientum versus versus populum is a discussion because the actual physical form the physical motions matter and affect us and how we enter into this thing you know yeah totally make a huge difference mm -hmm. so should it be tlm or should it be novus ordo john give me the answer um, forms. 
<laughs> I think that's a good question. Uh, uh, <laughs> you just, I, I can you gave you, my speech for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can give uh, you. A, uh, <laughs> I can I'm sorry, I can't answer the question. I can give you what comes off the top of my head, be it true or false. <laughs> Thanks for action. <laughs> yeah, I, I can give you Paul, what. Paul Richard, uh, not Rich Sherman. Uh, who's the guy? Thanks for action. It's the uh, Seahawks. Marshawn Lynch. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I'm sure so. Don't get fine. Thanks for asking, though. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> No, um, be it true or false, probably not thought through enough. Off the top of my head, I think maybe continue to provide a space for the Latin Mass to happen for those who is beneficial for. But what I'd like to see is a prudent execution practice of the Novus Ordo. I don't. Uh, I, I kind of, I need to just go through and read all the V2 documents and because the more I develop in my theological thinking and bump up against the ideas in Vatican II, the more I say, oh my goodness, they were actually onto something with this. <laughs> Isn't it wild? The elasticity within the new mass, I think, is both a blessing and a curse. I think it could be used in a way that would be so beneficial, but what has happened, and you can see it, I mean, as Americans, we see it all the time with uninspired, bad architecture, bad music, um, the priest doing whatever, like the, the widespread adoption of versus Popolum, all these things that aren't necessary parts of the, of the Novus Ordo being implemented. You, at liturgical dance, which isn't even, I don't think, allowed in it, just... People use the elasticity of the Latin mass as license to do whatever they wanted. Or the elasticity of the post-conciliar reforms, I should probably say, to do whatever they wanted. Um, you see that negative side, but I think the elasticity could also, I think I probably already said this, I'm rambling. <laughs> it, it could be used for great good for catering the mass to individual communities to be more subsidi you know, follow subsidiarity in that way. And the local priest helping the bishop exercise his office can work together to prepare a liturgy that will actually be spiritually beneficial to the laity yeah and then work from there because they're the most immediate they should know the spiritual needs of their flock that's why they're there yep and i think that could be i think yeah what i'd like to see is a reform of the reformed mass <laughs> there you go pope benedict had it right man man that is that's exactly what i want to try and convey mm -hmm. i mean it's look Yes, I think the liturgy, I think the Latin Mass should still somewhat be available, but we should move to try and restrict it a little bit more so that people can take those things we've learned from the traditional Latin Mass and bring it back to the Novus Ordo and make a very killer Novus Ordo, yeah. which is the liturgical framework, which is amenable to like, and you said blessing and a curse. Where has it been a blessing? Africa, mm -hmm. Southeast Asia. Like they've loved it. They've taken it. They've done like, you know, the... <laughs> They do like African dances and African songs and stuff. Like I've seen it firsthand. Like it's awesome. Yeah. They love it. Their liturgy is so much a part. And isn't of who it? They are. It's like different because when you say liturgical dance, I, you think of the terrible German yeah, videos you crap, see, yeah, or the liturgical hula I've seen, where they just during the presentation of the gifts that people come up on the altar and do hula dancing. Yeah. Well, isn't it more? It's not like you force dance in the liturgy. Isn't it more like they just sort of move and flow yeah. as part of their worship and singing their dancing sort oh, yeah. of thing? It's, like it's so African. That, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like in the way you'd see in like a documentary on African tribes. They've yeah. incorporated da, 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 that, da, da, that part da, of their da, culture. They've brought da, it into their da, worship. Da, da. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're dancing. And, yeah, yeah. and they also have like, they have like some of the um, young women or kids or whatever, 
like do dances as they're coming to the altar and like oh, yeah. instead of having like a guy with a cross you know do the altar like walk out and get yeah they're, they're the presenting the, 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 they have like you know the they'll be all in like a costume for dancing and stuff and just be dancing on their way up and they'll have no, like, no, and that's it'll take like an hour and a half yeah. the whole mass you know that goes back to what we're saying though because that's different in the west dancing doesn't have much or if it did it was in the ancient world so long ago that we don't remember it that sort of li- spiritual liturgical dance is not part of our cultural heritage. When you're baptizing the pagan African ro- uh, cultures, you can draw that from the religions because they actually have it there. Dance yeah. isn't just a thing about personal expression or erotic desire. It's a tribal thing. Like it is, it's, it's a tribal thing. It's already a liturgical thing. It's part of their pagan worship. Yeah. So we take that and sanctify it for the true religion, the fullness of the truth. Yep. Now you can't do that. You, know, you can't do we that. Don't, we don't have it with the West. We yeah, don't this, have it. This is the thing we, you know, I mentioned the, the article of like the secular wasteland. Like it's, there's no culture to like actually have a cultural expression. You know? And that's what I was trying to express poorly that yeah. anything good that we would be baptizing is from the Christian heritage. We're a post-Christian nation. We're not a post-pagan Christian nation. Okay, so maybe the objection then comes, okay, well, then why not Latin Mass? Like, that seems to be no, our yeah. heritage in the West. Yep. So That's... why not let them do the Novus Ordo and us just like return to the Latin Mass? If you're mm-hmm. so insistent that the Novus Ordo has been good for Africa and Southeast Asia, but we live in a post-Christian culture, Latin Mass is a genuine expression of European culture. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we doing it? Throwing that softball to you. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, my inclination is to actually kind of avoid the question with a tangentially related point. Go for it. Uh, Talking about the Novus Ordo and the Latin Mass in opposition like this may paint an incorrect picture of what they are. The Novus Ordo is the reform of the Roman Missal, which the Latin Mass in the form, I mean, and also the Latin Mass that we said at St. Pete's once a week and all over the United States is, I believe, the reforms by John the Twenty Third, isn't it? Uh, he was it, the last one, the last to, one to put, his, do, hands to put on. his hands on it. Exactly. So what the Novus Ordo is, is a pretty drastic reform of the Roman Missal, which goes way, way, way back and was sort of more formalized under Pius X post-Trent. Uh, so it's not like they, the new Mass is not literally a brand new Missal, a brand new liturgy. It's a reform of the Roman Missal, which goes back. It's part of the same thing, mm-hmm. which I think is helpful to keep in mind. It's not the Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo aren't opposed as two new rites. Right, they're different expressions of the same rite and the same heritage. Um, do we just go back to the old form of the Roman Missal? I still think there's benefit to. I grew up pr- in the Novus Ordo. I, I still think there's That's benefit what... to prudentially implemented elasticity in it for the just. From I already said it, the position of subsidiarity and actually being a pastor to your flock, being a shepherd to your flock. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it could be very good. Maybe someone could push back against me and say, look, you give guys license and look, we have clown mass. Why don't we just go more to, to originally implemented right? I don't know. Like, so Thanks for throwing that softball to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I knocked it out of Either the park. Yeah, knocked it did. out of the park. <laughs> Dr. Plato has um, that point of like, Look, if we re-implemented a totalized Latin Mass, it'd be even more traumatic for those people who the Novus Ordo was misapplied immediately after the Latin Mass. No, that yeah. 
Like, I mean, people have grown up with this is the way the mass is, and then you, in the West, re-implement TLM. People are like, what? You're chanting, like, everything's in Latin? I've noticed a Franciscan over the last four years, maybe you have too, you know, small but substantial changes to how the masses are done. Mm -hmm. The altar, the tabernacle used to be on the side Mm -hmm. in in CTK. They put it back in the middle. Yep. They put angels next to it. Um, you know, they're still doing Finnegan Fieldhouse masses, but they, they have a bigger altar. It looks a lot more, you know, traditional. Maybe a it's a lot more people are receiving on, on the knees. Just as, and on the tongue, yeah. And on I the was tongue about to say far that. more. Like these are these are very beneficial things that TLM masses have been like incorporated into Novus Ordo, which is the like the ordinary form of the Roman Rite at the moment. Mm-hmm. But, so yeah. at the moment. Uh and the extraordinary form has done this benefit. You know, in, in showing people how you incorporate traditional things back into the mass. So, yeah, I, I'm for, and, you know, that restricting yeah. of the Latin mass is meant to kind of push people into mm-hmm. br- being going back to your Novus Ordo parish and reincorporating traditional elements into it. Like, I mean, Father Nick Larkin, yeah. the one who's in Denver, is celebrating. I mean, the majority of his masses are Novus Ordo. He learned a lot from like starting to do TLM, but he incorporated so much to you know, like his homilies are just killer. His he celebrates he it at at Orientum, at least his daily masses. Yep, he, and his Sunday masses. Does he do that now? He he's okay. started to do the Our Father in Latin and like all that type of stuff. Like you reincorporate like the like people make the Novus Ordo as like this boogeyman of just like everything they hate about like how you know they think all the Novus Ordo are just clown masses. It's like, no, 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 no. This is how the church is doing. Yeah. Like, you need to bring tradition back into it, you know? And I, another just side point, I kind of want to clarify that it's, it's not just because it's tradition that we think these are good. We think it's because it is good liturgical tradition. Yeah. The physicality of it, these signs, the, they were effective and they're good and they're beneficial. It's not just, like, naive conservatism or naive traditionalism. Yes. It's complicated. Like that's anything, how you should you should open your speech. With, all right, with, it's with that intonation, exactly. I'm sorry, but it's complicated. This is hard, there's guys. Of, there's a lot of weird situations. Oh, it's like the Big Lebowski when he's trying to explain the plot. There's a lot of parts going on here, man. It's uh, you know that's he just rambles for like two minutes straight. Where's my white Russian man? <laughs> White Russians are nasty. Changed my mind. What? They are nasty. I, look, I don't even, I don't think dairy agrees with you, my body. You put, you put half and half? I, dairy does not, I'm half pretty sure. Half and half coffee I might be and lact- vodka? I might even be lactose intolerant. And I think white Russians are amazing. <laughs> I, I sorely disagree. Have you had a black Russian? No. It's the same, just without half and half. Oh, really? It's pretty good? Yeah, it is. Where do you get coffee it's stronger? Liqueur? It's a Kahlua. Kahlua's coffee liqueur. Oh, oh, I'm stupid. Huh. That's weird. No, no, white Russians are delicious. It's like coffee ice cream, but really high alcohol content. <laughs> nice. No, I, I love them. That's just your opinion, man. <laughs> um, How's this debate going to do? How's this debate going to go, John? Give me your honest opinion. Not that you haven't been honest before. Um, well, judging by social media polls led me to have incorrect notions about the last debate. 
I thought I would have way more people on my side than I did, and most of who I had were consequentialist heretics, so that was unfortunate. Uh, that was unfortunate. <laughs> really doesn't help my case. The only one stepping up for you were uh, saying... The ends do justify the means. The yeah, only <laughs> like, stepping up for me were saying, actions be damned, it's all about the ends. Yeah, that was um, not helpful. Unfortunate. Um, but based on the poll, you have an uphill battle. I mean, that's with the, within the Veritas Society group chat itself, which I think probably tends towards traditionalism more anyway so yeah. keep that in mind but based on the trends i think you have an uphill battle okay just just like my general impression of where campus is at right now um it does make me it'd be wonder. cool if we could get because in the theology department we have a lot of the older more v2 era professors guys like shrek it'd be cool if we could get them to actually show up to our debates and talk on stuff like this because i'm sure like shrek or you could probably name more than me you're actually a theology major who could bring something interesting, a different perspective that's not talked about among the young traveling and Catholics as much to these debates. Ugh. We've been having a rough time getting professors to like us lately, I think. Yeah, I, I think we've really neglected that fact of Veritas. Um, we used to have professors all the time. We have Cyrilla and Plato. They come all the time. They do. They Shout do. out. And Harwood, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you know, I... <laughs> man... Yeah, well, so Shrek, for example, he's very V2. And Cyrilla is like, no, no, not V2. Did you know Cyrilla was a master's of theology student under Shrek? Oh, yeah? Yeah, and he studied under Shrek. Well, Shrek's, is <laughs> and he they still one, debate each other. Now that uh, Zorik is retired, isn't Shrek like one of, Next if not on the, the longest tenured professors at Francis? Really? Wow, yeah. He's Hasn't been he been here ages. since like the 60s or something like that? I don't know, 60s, but maybe like 70s and 80s i don't know he's yeah, been I'm here for ages up. regis martin also is very old <laughs> i looked up alan shrek and all the pictures are from <laughs> shrek the musical on broadway <laughs> <laughs> the best shrek Not oh because alan walker was in shrek it was actually in shrek's class that i did alan my vatican Vigo? one paper oh, yeah? a lot of what i'm talking about comes from reading John okay okay wait, wait hold up one second i found his uh it's loading. I found his page on the Franciscan website. I saw the preview as soon as it loads. I believe it said 78. Oh um, my gosh. Why is my computer so slow? Dr. Alan Shrek has been a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville since 1978. Oh my gosh. He's served as graduate theology for eight years between 81 and 99. Uh, between yeah. 81 and 99. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. No, yeah. I'm not going to read his whole bio, but yeah. He's been around for a while. He has been a fixture here for a long time. You're kidding. Holy smokes. Anyways, I it was under his, it was in his class on uh, church history that I did my Vatican I paper. And that blew me away. Blew me away. You can't understand Vatican II without Vatican I. And you can't understand Vatican I without the French Revolution. You can't understand the French Revolution without, wait, what? Oh, I'm just kidding. I, I have no idea. Um, the problem, John. French Revolution's easy. The French are degenerate people. That's why it happened. Simple. They smoke and they eat baguettes. That's and do other do. things. <clears throat> Say, you heretic! <laughs> what things? Uh, one of my, you know what one of my worst memories in Paris is? <laughs> what? So, okay, this is a long tale. <laughs> I've not told this to many people. So I was on the plane going from San Diego to Paris. I went to, I think we went to JFK first and I get on the plane and I sit next to like very cute girl. 
And a person next to her, who I assume like is her sister or something like that, makes small talk after like a really long time. And I'm like, finally muster up the courage. And they're like, oh, we're going to Paris to visit and all this stuff. And it ended up being her and her mom. Her mom was just really young. And I I was going alone to Paris for five days. And so I said, hey, we should, you know, meet up, do something. And we went and we went to the Rodin Museum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know the Auguste Rodin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, The the thinker, Gates of Hell. Oh, it was awesome. It was so cool. And we walked around and stuff. But we went to this like, cafe and i don't this seared into my memory because i in true gender equality just went and sat down and didn't like pull their seats for them and the waiter like gave me the worst look i've ever had in my entire life if that is the closest thing to uh anyways so yes boorish american <laughs> you boorish american yeah i can't believe you would sit down and not pull out the chair for these two young women and anyways um i still have her number <laughs> no, I, I, I was thrown off as soon as you actually had small talk made small talk with someone on a plane maybe my body language and lack of eye contact helps me avoid it i i would not like that and i've managed to avoid it my entire life i have not chatted with strangers on planes i guess i was a baller back yeah, I mean, then when i was when i was going to, to austria now your personality you're more outgoing anyway yeah but eh, it was it was a fun time but i went to paris alone and went all over the place paris is amazing if you've not been to paris i highly recommend um, all that to say, the Frenchies lost the faith in the French Revolution, and that's not good. But they still make really good baguettes. Um, also, the, anti, the anti-French sentiment is ironic. I need to, before before all the, these Francophiles come after me, I need to clarify Oh, really? That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I could learn one language, it would definitely be French. Um, yes. Spanish would be cool, just for the fact that you could, you know, go to South America and Mexico and other places, but... Um, yeah, French would be really nice, especially for reading French, French stuff. It's very close to English. Okay. I, I'm not going off topic, John. You're giving me that look. I'm not off topic. Oh, I, okay. My story time. My, uh, apparently my face is a lot more condescending than I realize. <laughs> what do you mean? Like my looks are kind of judgy. I'll give you that. But people seem to interpret them a lot. Like my sentiment is a lot harsher than I want to. Me and a coworker, it was super slow. So we were just like doodling. She doodled a pumpkin and she's like, you draw one too. So I did. And she's like, oh, cool. Eight out of 10. What do you give mine? And I just, all I did, I was wearing a mask too, because we have to wear the look. So it was just like the top half, my eyes and eyebrows and whatnot. I looked at it and she went, oh, and gave it and wrote two out of 10 over hers. And I was like, what? Did my look look like a two out of 10? And she's like, oh, okay. So she scribbled down and wrote a negative one out of 10 on it. It's like, what? So apparently my face is... <laughs> A lot more condescending and judgmental than I intend, because I was not trying to convey that I hate this. I was just looking at it and, you know, trying oh, to think just, what I would it give. Was based on like what your facial expression was. No, because I didn't say I didn't say anything. She just said, "What do you get?" And I looked, and then she herself wrote the two out of ten over it, like my implying that my look would say that. And then when I said, "Wait, wait," my face looked like a two out of ten face, and she was like, "Oh no," and then negative one. Was like, oh, oh gosh! It's like what? I just looked at. I mean. <laughs> That was just my... That was I, the worst pumpkin I've ever seen! That's just my... How do you draw a triangle pumpkin? I just love... <laughs> it was like... It was a judgy face in that literally I was trying to make a judgment as I looked, but apparently it's a lot more critical than I intend. Oh, that's Same funny. thing happens right there. It's like, I just look over and you're like, oh, you're judging me. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's just my face, man. It's just your face, man. That's <laughs> just your opinion, man. Um, apparently I'm more mature in look, apparently, and... Uh... Very rugged and masculine, I'd say. 
But like, I don't the feel stubble that way. Helps. I, I ain't mature. Yes, the <laughs> stubble, stubble helps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, wow. Like Maria saw me last time. She's like, wow, you already have a full beard. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is five days. Yeah, it's not fair. This is like a week and this is all I have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like it, though. I don't know. I just look kind of like if I, if I could pull off clean shaven, I would. It's just I can't. Um, okay, so we are not off topic, I promise. Um, Vatican II. Vatican II, like you said earlier, you will find, says some pretty good stuff. I quoted it in my article. Wow. <laughs> That's how good the stuff was. Um, okay. Not sure it. how to respond to that. Okay, you, uh, John, you remember my Vatican II wall. Is this correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of a outcropping or something like a. It was a, well, it was a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like a, not an iconostasis, but a similar idea where you have all the icons just on the back. There was everyone from Rahner to Balthazar uh, uh, to Congar, Archbishop Rotzinger, de Siguad. Um, I went full crazy mode on it. That was almost two, Le two years ago. Yeah, Archbishop Lefebvre. Lefebvre for you Americans. Okay, was Lefebvre a schismatic? I don't know that much about that whole SSPX deal. I know that didn't weren't all the bishops excommunicated or something like that under yeah. John Paul the John Paul II. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that a lot of them were brought back or it was revoked or something like that under Benedict the Sixteenth, but Lefebvre was dead by then. Yeah. So that's really difficult to try to think. There's like, was it a just excommunication? What's that mean for him persisting in it? Even if he was right with his, you know, he should, should he have been more obedient to the church? What's that mean for his soul? That it was revoked, which means maybe there was something wrong there, or at least mercy was being given to them by the papacy. But that was after he was dead. So what's that mean for him in right. trying to judge him historically? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, he's very interesting figure. I love his speeches. His speeches are really powerful, but he talks about like the revolutionary spirit of, um, this is the same thing that Archbishop Perinqua de Siguad talks about this revolutionary spirit that's coming about, you know, that's um, one thing I've wondered with Vatican too, of some of the problem with its implementation and with the count, what happened in the council itself was the historical, um, circumstances in which it happened. It's like the theology that came out of it could be brilliant, but it wasn't implemented the best. And there were some weird forces at play just because of when it, when it took place. Yeah. There were these communism was still communism was alive. There was the more modernists and progressive thinkers within the clergy. I mean, it's unavoidable because it's all related that those factors are part of why the council needed to happen in the first place. Right. But, and they never condemned communism. Officially? Nope. Not, not a Vatican II. Not any of the writing. I think I've heard that. Yeah. Previous popes had. Yeah. And subsequent popes did. Yeah. But they didn't at the, the council, which was interesting. Interesting. What they have needed. I'm trying to think why they well, would have. Well, Perengo de Seguad yeah. really wanted it. And yeah. a number of the bishops. So they wrote in these, they're called votas. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to see happen at the council? Yeah. And one of the things they, they voted for was we need to, um, pronounce on communism mm-hmm. didn't do it and in fact um there was this concordat made with the vatican and with russia that they wouldn't 
say anything about communism. You can actually look it up. Um, pretty pretty wild. Um, no, most of my Googling is just making sure I use words correctly. Hold <laughs> no worries. It's an audio only, so... Um, yeah. Oh, that's not true. I have all sorts of random stuff on tangents we never went on that I was preparing for. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I told you I wouldn't uh, give you any... Any forewarning? Uh, I think the I think the debate will will be good. Um, I'm excited to see what Mr. Sammons brings in because he's like a pretty well researched guy, and I mean this is what he does for a living is write and talk mm-hmm. about you know Catholic stuff as Crisis Magazine, which is definitely the life you can get to do this as a living though if you're married. Um, so I'm interested to see what he says. I'm definitely no, um, uh, I'm definitely not on par in that regard. So I'm hoping Ruben can kind of bring up the class. I, I'm wondering if me or Ruben should go first. I really don't know. You want to be strategic with speech order, definitely. Are 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 you doing uh, mid speeches again? Yes, they okay. are doing mid speeches. Yeah, because opening and the final concluding speech are two of the most important. Mm-hmm. or maybe the two most important going absolutely last i think is the most valuable that is the prime really? that is the prime cut of the speeches because e- even like literally the last speech after the other side's conclusion because mm-hmm. it is the freshest thing in everyone's mind if you can give a killer closing speech that's what everyone's remembering when they vote right yeah i believe it uh we're not giving the last speech so mm-hmm. also affirming seems to have a bit harder time usually huh that'd be i i haven't noted that myself but it'd be interesting you know, to go back, to affirm and, go back in the records and just suppose it yeah well i i guess skepticism is easier than anything else if you can introduce any doubt it makes it harder for people to assent to the motion yeah to the whole proposition yeah, yeah exactly which is what i tried to do in our debate but oof <laughs> Though, no, I, I really enjoyed though, that one. To, it is the most trivial example I gave. I mean, this is going back to that debate. I don't know if you want to do that. The most trivial example I gave was Liar's Dice. I think, funny enough, <laughs> probably Dick too, it might be the hardest one for anyone to explain. I'd be interested to, like, everyone who voted against my motion, explain to me with a compelling, you know, moral argument why that's not lying. And if it is lying, why is it why is it acceptable? Mm-hmm. If you want to take a natural law approach, which Thomas does, and Thomas is consistent, he thinks jocose lies are impermissible, and I'm pretty sure he'd say that games where you have to lie to people might be impermissible as well. There's the story, um, Thomas Aquinas was out doing whatever, and he heard one of the other brothers cry, Brother Thomas, Brother Thomas, come see the flying ox. And Thomas, you know, goes out to the window, and <laughs> he looks at his brother dominican and says i would rather believe an ox could fly than a religious could lie <laughs> just a oh total buzzkill oh yeah that's how committed he was to the to, to the truth stuff, to, yeah. to his uh rigorous view on lying so i'd be interested to see everyone who aff- was that affirmed the motion because i can't remember how it was worded uh, voted against me that's the important part everyone yeah. who voted against my arguments go look for the flying ox yeah go yeah it's like are jokes and games not lies justify this to me Using, using your natural law, justify it to me. Mm. I, a lot of my jokes are kind of just subtle, like like funny lies. Yeah, I would. I also think there is a distinction. 
but like an actual jocose lie is a lot narrower than just lies that do not express the truth. Because if you're being sarcastic you're, or ironic, you are literally saying words that are opposed to what you mean, but within the context where you're actually communicating with the language. Because I'm not taking like a literalist approach to language here. The context and the way the language game is being played, it is clear you intend the obvious. Let's say, oh, the weather's great today. Tonally, you know what I'm saying. That's not a lie. No. Because what I'm communicating is clear. There might be a miscommunication, but there's no intention on my side. Yep. And if you know what's going on, there's not going to be a miscommunication. And you're making kind of like an analytic view of like language, that it's just like these pure truth phrases rather than uh-huh. intonation. And- mm-hmm. Language is way more complicated than that. An actual joko sly would be like the dude bro joke, like, dude bro, I like I used in the debate, your car just got total, man, go look. And they run to the window and they're worried, and then you go, ha, 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 JK, really got you. Because in that one, your intention is actually to deceive someone. And mm. even in kind of a sick way, if you think about it, the joy of the joke is coming from the discomfort of the person. Yeah, right. It's not exactly the most charitable way to treat someone. But that's what it, that sort of thing is what a joko sly is, is actually lying. For the jest. Or, like, I think either similar or identically in Thomas's treatment of this would be people who lie to tell a good story. Which, again, is different than if you're going to a storyteller or a comedian. Sometimes it's clear that they're making up the story. That's not actually a lie because in the context, everyone understands that this is not meant to be a true statement. The kind of person will sell down and spin you a great yarn about that time they went hunting. and I went uh, to the butcher and he said... <laughs> I said, I want a Polish sausage. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that one again, Norm MacDonald, we all know he's not actually Polish. Yeah. So it's not a lie. But if I were to give my great fishing story, I'm like, that catfish was the size of a canoe. I wrestled him for three days. And I mean, that's a little extreme. You probably catch on eventually. But that sort of story, when you exaggerate or just completely fabricate a story for the sake of entertainment, Thomas says that's still a sin, but it's probably venial because the matter's not that, it's not that weighty. It's not like. Sure like malicious lies to hurt someone. Yeah. But this was a tangent that was totally unrelated to anything. <laughs> no, no. I mean, Latin mass. What can you say? Um, Don't lie about the Latin mass. They're related. There you go. It's related. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I think Hadley would do a good job too. You know, she's really, um, Be interesting over the last like year and a half, two years. I mean, since she's been here, basically. Mm-hmm. She's had such a transformation, probably like more than anyone I've like known. She was on yeah. the podcast last time. Yeah. You guys will remember. Her. Um, <clears throat> if you're an active probably listener, so, <laughs> for all you active listeners who listen to literally everything we say, which so would be you, awesome. Which like, is you? Which is me. Yeah. Well, I actually don't listen to the podcast all the time. Not anymore? Right? Uh, no, I usually don't go back and watch hmm. old ones unless like they're like a while. really baller. Yeah. yeah. Not just like, like after you release them, you like to go back and listen through though is what I was re- referring to. I don't actually. Really? I usually just publish them. Like when we were living in Ridge, I heard you listen to them all the time. I would listen to like the Jones one all the time. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, the Jones sure. one was, yeah, my, my beloved master. Jones. That is a good podcast, by yeah, the way. That was, go back and watch it, you tringuses! Anyway. Listen, I guess they can watch the bar move as well. The, the bar? The what? The timestamp bar you said watch. Oh, yeah. I prefer if they listen to it personally. I, you know, you can watch the time bar, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, seriously, Hadley's like, it's been crazy over, uh, since she was, uh, on the first time of the podcast, second time of the podcast, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the hell's going on outside. No, windows are closed. I don't know if this one's open. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> Just do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know what, uh, 
uh, know what Hadley's done over the last uh, year and a half. Learned quite a lot. She's still like a junior, so mm-hmm. another year. So, um, <laughs> we got just some fun. We got some fun stuff happening yeah, outside, just guys. Ignore it. We're good. Yeah, Kindle Ave. It's a pretty pretty gangsta gangsta. Um, that makes me gangster because I live. That there. does make you gangster. Yo, yeah. I get my cred, no. I, I'm excited yeah. for this debate. I think this would be. I think this would be a good one. Um, excited to see what Ruben brings up. He sent me all these Peter Kwasniewski quotes that are all like extremely whack. Kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, but they were published by for things that were overseen by. <laughs> things that were sent by uh, Crisis Magazine. Yeah. John Paul II and Benedict XVI were swimming in a lake of Kool-Aid rather than the ocean of tradition. They were conflicted and inconsistent progressives. Benedict XVI was swimming in a lake of Kool-Aid instead of tradition. What flavor of Kool-Aid? Grape. Mm. Grape Kool-Aid. It's a great flavor. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for us, the Kellen and Alex show. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll see you guys next week with Mike Arups. He's coming on the podcast. We're going to talk about um, the question. <laughs> uh, no comment. Uh, no comment. James Levanski was actually going to be on tonight. He couldn't make it this time. He had work, unlike us, who are, well, I'm unemployed, but John is employed. Yeah, I just had to stay off. Shut the bug up. <laughs> uh, we love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful night or morning or afternoon or whenever you're listening to this. A wonderful time. Have a wonderful time. We love you and peace out. If there's a Christian religion, then it's Catholicism or nothing. What politics actually is, art of people living together, orienting one another towards virtue. And the person was like, dude, flirting is the abortion of love. This is the most worthy, most exciting, most adventurous. Drop a nuke uh, on the Franciscan bubble. The Kellen and Alex Show. Theology. God could have stopped it. If he Permissive wanted. will. That's right. <laughs> I don't know why God would allow something like that to go through, but then again, God allows. God allows you to go to... on and on. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Truth. Okay. <laughs>